Good morning, everybody. Everybody online, if you're watching in, in your homes and all of you here, I'm so glad to be with you today. Guess what? It was snowing in Invergrove when I drove today here. Mm. How many of you had to shovel last Monday? Yeah, it was a surprise. I've lived in Minnesota most of my entire life, a little bit of time in Philadelphia. Uh, but I'm always surprised by the first snow, especially one that large. Thankfully, we have a renter with us, and he shoveled our driveway. I'm so grateful. Uh, the snow is going to melt, this batch, and then more will come. Uh, so we are moving toward winter, and Sue and I made a decision that we want to embrace winter more this year than we ever have, because we know we'll be inside a lot. And so we yesterday went online and bought warmer winter clothing. So, so I bought a new parka, some boots, so we can go out on our deck with our fire table on and drink hot chocolate with our grandkids. Because we want to stay connected in the midst of this situation. So uh, we want to lead our lives as well as we can during this time. Now, speaking of leadership, today we're continuing our series on leadership from the book of Nehemiah. We've been looking at a different characteristic of leadership each week. We've looked at how leaders pray, how they plan, how they repair together. Today we'll be looking at how leaders overcome opposition. Now, when I uh, think about leadership, the place I always start is self-leadership. I need to lead my life as well as I can toward Jesus, toward others, toward Jesus' mission. If I'm gonna lead well anywhere else, I need to lead my life well first. And I've learned that leaders always encounter opposition. Jesus said this, in this world you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And Paul encourages the early followers of Jesus, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah, somewhat glad for that. <laughs> anyway, but we do get to enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting. Uh, I came, uh, you know, to the office today, which I'm not here all that often, and I noticed on my desk I had this book, Excellence in Leadership. And I've read this years ago, and it hit me. I think that's about Nehemiah and leadership. And surprise, it is. And it's still available. It's, it's a really excellent book on leadership. And uh, John White, who wrote it, says this. No test of leadership is more revealing than the test of opposition. Christian leaders can go to pieces under such pressures. Some grow too discouraged to continue. Others build walls around themselves and shoot murderously from behind them. They become embattled, embittered, and vindictive. Not so Nehemiah. Nowhere does this leadership shine, his leadership shine more brightly than in his handling of opposition. It began, as we've already seen, before he even reached Jerusalem. It spanned the course of his long career so that our last glimpses of him at the end of his journal are of his vehemence and competent countermeasures to godless opposition in Nehemiah 13. So we are going to look today at Nehemiah chapter 4. It is one of my like, favorite chapters in the book of Nehemiah because it shows the wisdom of God, the strength of God, the love of God at work as we overcome opposition. Let me pray and we'll look at Nehemiah 4. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the greatest leader the world has ever seen. 
And we, we, we recognize that you encountered much opposition from many places during your life here on earth, from the evil one and his evil workers, from people in power, religious leaders, political leaders, and, you, and there was confusion even among your own disciples about you. And you overcame it all with your loving sacrifice and relentless courage. We thank you that you are able to help us in every challenge we face. And we ask you by your spirit, come now this morning as we look at these, this chapter and help us learn and step into all that you have for our lives and our community. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read this in little sections and make comments as I go along. So Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? In other words, do they think they could just pray up the wall? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, isn't it interesting? Critics always seem to have friends standing right beside them. Yes, yes! <laughs> so he does that. He remarks, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. He's mocking. Interestingly, archaeologists have discovered the wall that Nehemiah and his people built was nine foot Thick. You could put a chariot across it. A lot of foxes, not just one. Uh, so how did Nehemiah respond to this mocking? Because they mocked the workers, and they mocked the work they were doing. He prays, hear us, O God, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. We'll talk a little about that prayer in a minute here. So opposition began as Sanballat and Tobiah angrily mocked and ridiculed the workers and the work. Now, they couldn't legally stop the work because King Artaxerxes had authorized it and demonstrated his support for it by providing resources and sending his army to make sure Nehemiah arrived safely. But the army did go back. They didn't stay. So they couldn't legally stop it, but they could mock, they could ridicule, and they did. Now, Nehemiah is dealing with physical enemies here, nations that surrounded Jerusalem, but I believe that he's really fighting a spiritual attack. Satan, the enemy of God's people for all time, he loves to hide behind and work through people in power, like Sanballat and Tobiah, and through systems that are evil. In the Old Testament, Satan attacks Israel primarily through the surrounding nations that worshiped false gods like money, sex, and power. Aren't you glad we don't have to struggle with any of those things anymore? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have the same battles today. Now, these nations were constantly trying to turn Israel away from trusting the God who had rescued them from Egypt so that they would worship their false gods. Moses describes Israel's great sin in Deuteronomy 32. He says this. This is not going to be on the screen. I, I, I'll just read it to you. But Israel soon became fat and unruly. The people grew heavy, plump, and stuffed. Then they abandoned the God who had made them. 
They made light of the rock of their salvation. They stirred up his jealousy by worshiping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons, which are not God, to gods they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived, to gods their ancestors had never feared. You neglected the rock who'd fathered you. You forgot the God who had given you birth. Interesting here. What's, what's going on here is when, when anyone worships an idol, they're actually worshiping the demon that's working through the idol. You know, you may see like uh, you know, people used to make idols of wood or stone or so on. We have idols maybe in our mind, things like money, sex, and power constructs. But behind them really is demonic power because Satan's big goal is to turn you away from trusting God for your security, your significance, and your satisfaction. And so when he can do that, this is, this is one reason why it's harder to get free than we think. It just isn't a process of making a mental choice. I want to be free. I'll be free. There's actually spiritual power that works through these issues. And we need to learn how to recognize that and fight that. That's why I'm going to do this little class. It's going to be online. And, uh, you know, I was thinking as they were giving the, the uh, spiel of classes, I'm learning to cook during COVID. Sue and I are cooking two or three times a week, which, truth be told, I've never done since college. And so I thought, oh, shoot, I would have liked to take Keisha's class. Now, I would have been, eh, you know, if there's zero in cooking, I'm in the minus probably. Uh, so <laughs> it would have been a little challenging, but maybe some other time. Uh, anyway, if you're, if you're interested and don't have a class, we'd love to have you join me. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah and the nations they led worshipped the false gods of money, sex, and power. And they didn't want Israel to continue to exist as a nation. They wanted the land and the resources for themselves. Now, Jesus said that our enemy, the devil, is a liar and a deceiver and an accuser. The Greek word for devil is diabolos, which we get our word diabolical from. And it literally means one who slanders and hurls assaults, verbal assaults. He is a relentless accuser. He ridicules who we are, ridicules the work we're doing as we build for the kingdom of God. Revelation 12 says that the devil accuses God's people night and day or 24-7. He will accuse you and I, you to God. He'll accuse God to you. He'll accuse you to other people. He'll accuse others to you. He'll accuse you to yourself. And we need to get better at recognizing and resisting these accusations. Let me just tell you a story personally. So when we planted the church in Invergrove, I chose to sit in the front for worship, not because I was more spiritual than anybody else. I wasn't. I just, I just was an insecure person, and I didn't want to see all the people who weren't there behind me. I was hoping people would come and we'd come back. And so sometimes in the midst of worship, as I was worshiping, I'd have this parade of people go through my mind that I knew didn't come that Sunday. What the heck? I had worked really hard. We had a really great service. Couldn't they just get out of bed and come? You know. And so that would happen, and it would totally knock me off worship. What was interesting is when I would get up to preach, guess what? Those very people that I had seen in my mind were all there. Now, that happened about four times before I realized what was going on. I'm kind of a slow learner. Satan was lying to me. He was accusing other people to me. He was saying, they're not as committed as you are, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, they really love Jesus, they'd be here. So about the fourth time that happened, I realized, this is not true. This hasn't been true in any of the, any of the other weeks. I bet it's not true today. Ah, Satan's a lie. He's lying to me. And so I did this. 
well, quietly. I didn't stand up and shout it. Quietly, I said, I belong to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, I command you lying and harassing and accusing spirit, leave me right now. And it would be gone. And then I could worship. The fifth time that happened, I did right away. And you know what? It, 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 it has not really happened much since. Now, that has never happened at Mercy Vineyard. Just relax. That only happened at River Heights. Okay. But he's an accuser. But you don't have to put up with it. You can take authority over it and command it to be gone. And it will. Now, so how does Nehemiah respond? He turns to God as his first resort. He turns to God as a first resort, as a last resort, as a middle resort. He turns to him all the time. It's his practice. He prays a prayer that seems a little harsh. Don't blot out their sins. What? Aren't we like supposed to pray that people are forgiven? Aren't we supposed to share good news so we can be forgiven? Doesn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Yes, he does. Nehemiah, I would say, is learning along with us. But there's two things that have helped me with these kind of prayers and the angry Psalms, if you've read those. Two things. One, Nehemiah is part of an oppressed people, and he's crying out to God to bring justice. Two, he's doing exactly what Paul says to do in Romans 12 when he says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I'll pay them back, says the Lord. So he's putting people in God's hands. He's turning them over to God. He's not going to deal with them directly himself. You know, you, you and I can do that when we have conflicts and frustrations. We can present people to God and say, Lord, you know, I'm having a rough time here. I'm struggling with this relationship. I really need your help. I want you to work in me, convict me, show me my part in this situation. And Lord, I bring them to you and I bless them. Please work this out. That is part of spiritual warfare, friends, responding well in a time of opposition. So what happens as he prays? Verses 6 to 9. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites, what's happened? The enemies have increased. When they heard that their work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall were being repaired, so the, the whole wall was being closed in, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion, the primary tactic of the evil one, to confuse. What did they do again? But we prayed to our God, and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. I think one version says, we prayed and we posted a guard. I love that phrase. So they were able to rebuild the wall to half of its height because they had a mind to work, and they worked with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm means being filled with God. So God was the Holy Spirit, and in the Old Testament was working to pull them together to accomplish a great task. And they, they had built up the wall to half its height. Now, Satan's always trying to distract you and I from the good work God's calling us to do. I remember as a young pastor planning the church, I always felt I was doing the wrong thing. When I was studying for a message, you know, I'd feel like the Lord said, if you really cared about actual people, John, you'd be having coffee with someone, you'd be praying with someone, but you just want to do research and study. Okay, I'd feel bad. So guess what? When I was having coffee and talking to someone and praying for them, this is the message. John, you're going to be talking to 150 people on Sunday. You're not using your time very well. Why don't you, sh you shouldn't spend all your time having coffee with people. You should be studying. 
Finally, I realized someone else is lying to me. Again, I'm kind of a slow learner. It's taken me a while. But I realized he was always trying to knock me off stride, always trying to distract me from what I was being called to do. I suspect he does that with you, too. But you don't have to put up with it. You need to be alert and recognize that's not God. God is not on me like that. We can stay alert. We can resist him. And we can continue the work. And it is amazing what you and I can accomplish when we work together with one heart and one mind. We pray together. We work together. We fight together for the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom moves on. And he changes the lives of more people than you and I could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis once said that the Christians make two mistakes concerning the devil and his devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. And, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we don't want to, let's not go to the extremes. I don't obsess about the devil. I don't find a demon behind every bush. But I don't also deny that they actually exist and they mess with me and they mess with the people of God. I was thinking uh, this week of my son, Sam, when he uh, was young, oh, I would say five, six, he'd often be tormented at night. He was super sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and so he'd have these terrible dreams. And he'd come up and he'd wake Sue and I up, which, of course, we loved. Don't you love that? Yes! You love your kids. You don't love that part of it quite as much, or at least I didn't. And uh, so he'd tell me about the dream, and I pray with him, and I take authority over those harassing voices in the name of Jesus. And sometimes it would take me 20 or 30 minutes to kind of get it all taken care of. That happened so regularly. One day I had this thought, why don't you teach Sam how to do this? And so I did. I said, hey, Sam, the next time this happens, why don't you do this? But you got to do it out loud because Satan can't hear your prayers in your head. God can, but he's, he's not God. you got to speak out loud. He said, I said, you know how, God, how, how Daddy talks to dogs that are in, their yard, in our yard doing their business? Yeah, like, get out of my yard. Okay, That's, you kind of need to do that. You don't have to shout, but you need to be direct. And so I said, say something like this, Sammy. I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Now, I command you, harassing spirit, to leave me alone. And so he started doing that, whereas it had taken me 20, 25 minutes sometimes. It had been done in, within five minutes for Sam because he was the one being attacked. He was the one who could resist and drive it off. So anyway, uh, that isn't the only way you help kids get back to sleep. Don't hear me say that. <laughs> it just happened to be what was going on in our family and in his life at that time. All right. Uh, we don't want to obsess about these things. John Wimber, early founder of the Vineyard, once said, casting out demons is like unclogging your toilet. It is a necessary job. But once you do it, you don't stay in the bathroom for the whole day thinking about it. You go out and live your life. You get it? All right. So they prayed and posted a guard. We resist the devil through prayer and by doing good work. Prayer is not the only good work we do, but it energizes and guides all the good work that we do. Nehemiah 4, 10 to 14. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There is so much rubble to be moved. 
Cassie did a great job last week talking about the rubble we are dealing with now. We'll never be able to build a wall by ourselves. And meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know it, we will swoop down on them. We will kill them and end their work. Interesting, it's in the midst of complaining, uh, whining, if I want to put a really nice spiritual word on it, lamenting. <laughs> How many of you are lamenting things now? I mean, we all are, right? Uh, for me, lamenting and whining is kind of a fine line <laughs> at times. If I'm talking to God about it and trusting him, it's really lamenting. Uh, if I'm talking to another person, often it's, it's just like flat-out whining. It just is. Sorry, uh, that's me. Uh, I'm a recovering whiner. Uh, anyway, uh, but it's in the midst of that often that the enemy attacks another way, kind of with a surprise, which is part of why Israelites were encouraged not to grumble so much. So the Jews lived nearby the enemy came and told us again and again, they'll come from all directions and attack us. So now what did Nehemiah do? So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. He recognized the vulnerabilities. Friends, for your own life, your family, your friends, groups you lead, it's important to recognize vulnerable places. I don't mean like, I mean it's good to be vulnerable. What I'm trying to say here is places that Satan may attack. Now I've learned, like the Marsden family, if there was a Marsden family sin, and there probably is, it was anger. Slow burn, resentment, anger, and at times flare up, raging anger. I've, my sisters have done a little history of our family back to Scotland. Yeah, we were leaders in Scotland. And sometimes we led well, and sometimes we led terribly. And there were wars and fighting in Scotland. And descendants on both sides of my family fought each other. It's like, it actually made sense to me. Some of these things can go from generation to generation. But we don't have to be controlled by them. If we recognize, if we deal with them, Jesus can, can break the power. That's the blessing of the next generation. They don't have to live through everything you have. But we need to recognize these vulnerable places. So Nehemiah is doing that. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to him, three great things he said that I would encourage you to remember your whole life long. Not just in a pandemic, but your whole life long. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Paul tells Timothy, you haven't been given a spirit of fear, but you've been given a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. Don't be intimidated by the evil one. His ultimate goal is to, is to discourage you and make you afraid. And so often when I pray for healing, particularly for situations that have been there a long time, I prayed years ago for a young man who was a high school senior and his kidney was failing. And his parents, they lived out in Chaska, and they woke up one morning, and they felt like God said, go to the Vineyard Church in Invergrove Heights. They didn't even know where we were. So they come, and they're there. I don't know any of this. At the end of the service, I have this sense that somebody's got kidney problems. And so I just say it, you know, I'm trying to be faithful. And I'm done with my talk, talk to a few people. This family comes up, and they were smiling, and they said, Thank you, that was so great today. We were so glad to be here. Uh, we came because God sent us to, to, to have somebody pray for our son whose kidney's failing. 
And immediately, you know, did I think, yes! No, I didn't. I thought, oh no, why did I say that? I have never seen a kidney healed in my entire life. Ah, I just felt like pressure. So I had to deal with that, and I said, Lord, you know, you're the healer, I will pray. And so I started praying for this young man, and nothing was happening. You ever know when, like, nothing's happening? I'm saying nice words. I'm saying Bible words, but nothing's happening. And so I just asked him, do you think anything's happening? No. And I said, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> and that kind of relaxed him. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I said, are you afraid? And he just started crying. This is like a tough, strong 17-year-old boy. And I thought, well, of course you're afraid. You look, your kidney's failing. Your whole life is turned upside down. Like, why didn't I think of that? But I didn't think of it. But I did then. So I said, hey, let me pray. For so first I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I break the power of this fear. I command you, spirit of fear, leave him alone right now. Don't return. And something lifted. We could feel it. Then I started praying for him, and his whole back heated up like it was in a, kind of in an oven. I didn't know all that that meant, and I, when, it, when it kind of seemed right to be done, I was done. Two years later, I'm at my daughter's school in White Bear Lake, and this man comes up. He was a teacher there with her, and he says, do you remember me? With a big smile. And I had been in a lot of meetings, and I've seen a lot of people, and they've seen me, but I don't remember them all. And I said, sorry, you got to help me here. He said, well, we came to your church with our son who had kidney failure. Oh, yeah, I remember him. How is he? Oh, he's totally healed. Uh, I started crying. A lot of you know I'm a crier. I started crying. I said, are you sure? <laughs> Great faith that I have. <laughs> really? And he said, absolutely. I said, did you go like to a doctor? <laughs> and he said, yes, we went to a doctor. What do you think? We wouldn't go to a doctor. He's our kid. And the doctor said, no need for any more treatment. Your kidney is totally fine. I was so thankful. But fear was blocking the prayer. So that's just a heads up to you when you pray for certain things and if nothing's happening, consider that. And then deal with the fear. Because Satan doesn't want anybody well. Doesn't want anybody to be healed. He always tries to get in the way to confuse and bring fear. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who's great and glorious. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. You know, they had gotten to this middle point in building the wall. It was halfway up. The middle point in any project is the most challenging time, right? The beginning, hey, it's exciting. We're getting going. The end, well, that's thrilling. We did it. The middle, uh, I don't think we can do it. I don't think I have enough to continue. Anybody feel that way now? Anybody think like, hey, I thought this would be over. We'd have a vaccine by now and we'd be good to go. Yeah. <laughs> we don't yet. I believe we will, but I don't know when. We're kind of, in some ways, in the middle. What do you do in the middle? What did they do? They turned to God, and they trusted him. Paul prays for the Colossians. We pray that you'll be strengthened with all his glorious power. I love that. Don't you love the power of God, the glorious power of God? What do you want the power of God for in your life? I love to see healing like that story I told. Truth be told, I probably had 10 stories that it hasn't worked so well, okay? Just to be honest here. But I'm glad for the ones where it does. I want power for healing. I want power to see freedom. I want power to change my, in my own life. But here he says, we have power. Excuse me, that's not up there. Sorry, it's on my notes. Uh, <laughs> glorious power so you'll have all the endurance and all the patience you need. 
Do you need power to endure difficult situations? I sure do. Do you need power to be patient with people that are difficult for you? Heads up, you might be the difficult ones for them too. But we need power to be patient and to have endurance. So don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Think about all the good things God's done in your life. Think about what he has for you. Read the Bible. Talk to your friends. Hear about their stories. Friends, it's so important to share stories now at this time. Texts, phone calls, emails, Zoom. You know, I know I get frustrated with Zoom. But I don't know where would I be without Zoom at this time. What? I, would, I would hardly be able to do any of my work at all. So I thank God for it. I'm glad it's in my toolbox, and I'm really glad for the day I don't have to use it as much. <laughs> okay. All right, so Paul, uh, excuse me, Tim Timothy, Paul, Nehemiah, they're all great people. <laughs> uh, so Nehemiah goes on and he says, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans, that God had frustrated them, we all returned to the work on the wall. But from then on, only half of my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. In other words, the leaders weren't off like in some special room with like all the amenities and bottled water and coffee and somebody serving them. They were right there with everybody. Friends, that's what leaders do. They're with the people. All right. Uh, where am I here? Then I explained, uh, all the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. I explained to the nobles and officials, all the people, the work is very spread out. We're widely separated from each other. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding. Our God will fight for us. You know, our God does fight for us. And he also energizes you and me to fight with and for each other. And so the trumpet kind of gathered them. That's kind of a little picture of the Holy Spirit gathering us together. We worked early and late, sunrise to sunset. Half the men were always on guard. I told everyone living outside the walls, stay here in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night, work during the day. And during this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us all the time, even when we went for water. They were focused. They didn't let themselves be distracted. They knew what they were called to do, and they were going to continue the work. And God frustrated the plans of their enemies as they prayed together, as they worked together, and as they fought together. You know, he will do that for you and I, too, in our family context, and our work context, here as a community. He will do that. Uh, maybe we could have the worship people come forward. I'm going to, like, bring this to a, a final, final, in, in a couple of minutes here. They persevered. They worked early and late. Their workforce grew. Their leader set a good example. They stayed alert. You know, Peter in the Bible, he wasn't always, he didn't fight very well in the beginning, but he learned how. And he says these words, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion. He looks for someone to devour. So stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. And remember, your whole family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. You're not alone. We're not alone. We're in this together. So let's, let's stand Let's stand firm. So as leaders, leading ourselves, leading our families, leading at work, leading in church, leading in the community, how do we overcome opposition? We pray together. 
We work together. We fight together. We don't have to be afraid. We remember the Lord, and we fight together. Today, when I was uh, eating my uh, cereal, I happened to read a certain devotional, and I read 2 Timothy 4. It's Paul's last recorded words. And he says these three great sentences that I want for my life, and I want for all of our lives. And I'm not saying I'm leaving this earth anytime soon. I hope I'm not. I hope you're not either. But I want to be able to say these things. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now a crown of righteousness is waiting for me and for all those who long for his appearing. And then he says this, the Lord stood at my side. He gave me strength so the message would be fully proclaimed. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. He will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Friends, you can resist. You can fight back together. You don't have to be overcome by the opposition you're experiencing right now or the opposition you will experience. God has great plans for your life, for the life of the Mercy community. He has everything we need to step into those plans and accomplish them together as we pray together, as we work together, and as we fight together. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much for this example of Nehemiah, how you were with him, how you were with those people and, and the things they were able to accomplish. We thank you today. You're with us. And you have purposes and plans that you are working to accomplish. We thank you so very much for your protection, for your wisdom, for your strength, for your power. Continue your good work in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to worship now, and then Tommy's going to come up. And